All right. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. We're continuing through the text. If you're new here to the Austin Stone, we go verse by verse through the scripture. And right now we're in the book, or the letter rather, of 1 Peter. He wrote this letter to a group of persecuted Christians, kind of instructing them on how to live as exiles in a culture that is hostile to what it is they had based their life on. If you remember, we talked about last week about what our response is to the fact that we've been saved. In other words, how is it that we are supposed to live our lives in light of the fact that Jesus has died for us, that we've received such a great salvation? Now, what are we to go and do? And we talked about how the Bible is clear in 1 Peter. It talks about that our response is that we're to live a, li- live a life of, uh, of holiness, that we're to live lives that are completely set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God in light of all that he's done. Let's read that together, 1 Peter 1.14. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Our response, church, to the salvation we've received in Jesus is to live our lives in obedience to God. Now, here's what we're going to see today. In verses 16 and 19, or rather 16 through 19, what Peter does is he basically gives us three reasons, kind of lays out three different arguments for why holiness in particular is the response to salvation. (laughs) If you force me, excuse me, if you force me to put a title on this sermon, I would, I would say three reasons why holiness matters. There are a lot of different things Peter could have said, hey, this is your response in light of your salvation, but he chooses here particularly to talk about holiness, and there's a reason that he does that. So we'll, before we get into kind of the three reasons why in the text holiness matters, I want to talk for a second about why the subject of holiness I think is so important for our church specifically today and why I think the last couple of weeks, this has been a critical subject for you and for me. And and it's this reason that in my opinion, in my opinion, if there is any aspect of the Christian life and the Christian walk that I think the Big C Church has stopped talking about over the last 10 to 15 years, I think it's been the subject of holiness. I think if there's been a subject that the Christian church has stopped talking about, it's been the call on the believer's life to live lives of obedience to God. And here's what I mean. Here's why I think that. If you go to iTunes today and you just open up kind of the the Christian podcast section of iTunes and you look at the top 100 preachers in iTunes, the number number one through 100 preachers that have been downloaded in the United States of America, there are only seven or eight maybe that I'm aware of, that if you listen to their sermons for any length of time, you will ever, ever, ever hear them call their congregations to live lives set apart from the world and to live lives of holiness and obedience to God. And if you hear, if you listen to these top 100 preachers, you will almost never, you almost never hear sermons on topics like our desperate need for forgiveness, uh, the blood of Jesus, sin, the wrath of God, hell. You will never, almost never hear topics like that from the vast majority, and we're talking millions and millions and millions of downloads. But what you will hear, 
What you will hear in the vast majority of their sermons are topics like becoming a better person, becoming a better person, living a better life. You'll hear sermons like on following your dreams. I hear that a lot today in today's culture. And then my personal favorite, you'll hear sermons on fulfilling your destiny. And I have absolutely no clue what that means. Fulfilling your destiny. What other choice do you have but to fulfill your destiny? Church, I have a doctorate in biblical exposition. I have absolutely no idea what that means. And I hear it over and over and over again. Every time I read Twitter, listen to a sermon, I'm like, go fulfill your destiny. Well, that's the plan, Jack. I don't know why you keep talking about it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not that those things are are, are wrong necessarily. It's just they're marginally biblical. They're marginally biblical. If you, if, you, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, I mean, I'm talking about you just open up the thing and you start in Genesis 1 and you finish all the way at the end of Revelation, here's what you're gonna notice. <clears throat> if you just take the subject of our desperate need for the forgiveness of sins because we have fallen short of the perfect glory of God and the subsequent call of holiness on a Christian's life in light of the blood of Jesus that has been imparted into our lives, it literally is talked about a thousand to one compared to you going out there and fulfilling your dreams in this life. And yet you would never guess that based on what's coming out of the pulpits in America today. And I think it's important that we're talking about holiness. Here's another reason. I think holiness is a critical subject for us. And there's, there's another direction. Now, y'all hang with me on this one. There's another direction that American preaching has taken. And overwhelmingly, I would argue that this is a really, really, really good thing. But it's the American um, kind of pendulum swing back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the problem has been is that our generation, I think, has abused it. Now, here's what I mean by that. When I was a kid, I was born in 73, grew up in the 70s and 80s and the early 90s. And because of kind of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 60s, um, there was this huge pendulum swing in churches all across America towards a more legalistic form of righteousness. Um, every time you went to church, I was there. Every time you went to church, you heard a sermon about, hey, unless you repent of your sin and trust into Jesus, you're gonna go to hell when you die, which is an absolutely true statement. But the problem was, is that a lot of times you would walk out of those sermons <coughs> thinking and feeling that there, there are things you had to go do in order for God to be pleased with you. Instead of resting in the fact that God is already pleased with the believer in light of what his son has already done on the cross. And that was a couple of decades worth of preaching. And so in the, in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, the, the pendulum swing swung all the way back to the gospel. And this has been a really good thing now for almost 20 years. It's reminding people that, look, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Your salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works so that any man should boast. It's by grace through faith alone. He is our one defense. He is our righteousness. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. There's nothing you can do in Christ to, to, for, him to, for you to lose his favor in your life. And again, which is an amazing thing, but here's been the problem that I've noticed is that the pendulum has swung so far to the other way that our generation has underemphasized the fact as we preach grace, as we should every Sunday, but as we preach grace, we've underemphasized the fact that there are literally hundreds, literally hundreds of times in the New Testament alone 
where the scripture says, hey, in light of the grace that you have received, now this, this is what it is that you are called to go out those doors and do. In light of the grace you've received, this is what the call on the believer's life is to respond to that grace. And so because of those two emphases in preaching, the result has been that with the ex, well, maybe the exception of church attendance, there has been, in my opinion, a drift in the holiness of Christians. There's been a drift in the holiness of Christians and our lives, not, not everybody, but our lives don't look all that different from the world's. I mean, if you just take things like the way we steward money, the way we spend our money, if you take things like our Christian, or rather our sexual ethic, kind of our view and practice of our sexuality, if you take stuff like how we entertain ourselves and you look at how the first century Christians live out their Christianity, and then you compare it to how we as 21st century Christians live out our Christianity, they don't really look all that much alike. All right, so let's jump into the text together. Again, turn with me. First Peter, let's look at 1 verse 15 as Peter starts laying out kind of these three foundations for holiness, three reasons why holiness is the response of the believers. So let's read this together, verse 15. Peter says, but like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That's what he left out. Here's the first reason. <coughs> he says, because it is written, First reason, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now what Peter's doing here is he's quoting God. This is, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God would look at his people and say, look, I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. I want your lives to be set apart for the singular purpose of worshiping God. Why? The Lord tells them, because I am holy. Right, And so the number one foundational reason Peter gives to us on why holiness is our response to the salvation we've received is very, very simple. You and I are to be holy because God is holy. Now, for us to get our minds around why God says that, look, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. I wanna ask you just kind of some theological questions here and I don't shout them out, but see if you can get the answer. What is our number one, here's the first question, what is our number one priority as a Christian? If you were to answer that question, how would you answer it? What is our number one aim and priority as a believer? Well, the answer to that question is the number one aim of the believer is to know God, to love him, and to worship him, to be in relationship with him. That's your number one priority. That's your number one goal. That's the number one thing you were created for and called to. That's why God saved you, to know him, to love him, to worship him, to be in relationship with him. That's the number one priority in your life, right? Now, what's the second priority of the believer? What's the second most important calling on our lives? And that is in light of the fact that we know him, in light of the fact that we love him, we are to now make him known. The call on our lives, our second priority is to demonstrate God's love to the world that we have received, to make disciples of Christ because we have been made disciples of Christ. <clears throat> That's the first and second priority. Don't turn there, just listen. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, this is God speaking. It says, this shall come about if you listen obediently to my commands, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, that's one. To love the Lord your God, and here's two. And to serve him with all your heart and your soul. It's always in that order. 
Philippians chapter three, verse seven. This is Paul speaking in the New Testament. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. And if you just stopped right there, you think that Paul's saying that, that, that the sake of Christ, that serving Jesus is the most important thing in his life. But then he says the next verse, and you realize that there was something more important to him than serving Christ. And in verse eight, he says it. He says, more than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, so priority number one is that you know the Lord, that you love the Lord. And then primary, uh, our, our secondary calling is that we make him known. Now, here's another theological question. How are you and I called to make him known? What are the ways that you and I are supposed to make him call or known to the world. We're supposed to make t-shirts. We're supposed to get banners and put them up on the side of the highway. Is that our way that we make him known to the world? Well, there's two primary biblical ways we're supposed to make him known. Number one is with our mouths. With our mouths, Romans 10, 14. It says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, the word preacher there, by the way, doesn't mean guys like me. It literally in the Greek just means messenger. Paul's saying, look, how in the world are they gonna hear the gospel if people like you and me don't open our mouths and give them the message? So with our mouths, that is one of the primary ways we make him known. But look, church, there is another way that you and I are called to make him known. What is the second biblical way that you and I make the Lord known in the world. How do we do it? It's with our lives. We don't just make Christ known to the world with our mouths, but there's also a calling biblically to make Christ known in the world with the way that we live. <clears throat> Jesus said it this way in Matthew five fourteen. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, the world is darkness. Talks about it over and over again, it's dark, but you are this little light that's walking around in the world. Jesus said, You're, uh, he says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He said that phrase on the side of the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, I've been there, you're just standing there looking at the Sea of Galilee and behind you, there's this massive hill that goes up for a really, really long way. I don't know how far, but on the top of that hill is this city. And if you're standing by the Sea of Galilee at night, it's completely black. You can't see anything, but you can see that city set on the hill. I'm telling you, that's where Jesus was standing when he made that statement. He's like, hey, you guys see that city up on that hill? You can't cover the light of that city. That's what he's saying about you. You're gonna shine in the darkness. And he goes on, he says, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. In other words, there's an active participation that we have in showing that light. And then in verse 16, he makes a statement. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. Let's read that one more time. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Jesus said that one of the ways that we make him known is that you live your life in such a way that people that don't know God see the way that you live your life and it makes them want to worship God. 
I had something happen uh, years ago and made me think about it this week because there's just been this incredible hubbub. Um, there was a politician <laughs> this week that it kind of came out that he would not um, be alone with a woman that wasn't his wife. And, and everybody just went crazy about it. And I don't watch, I don't know about you guys, but I quit watching the news a while back. <laughs> it just makes me mad and frustrates me. I don't listen to talk radio anymore. I like listen to country music and 80s music because I'm an old dude and that's all I listen to anymore. But every once in a while, political stuff will kind of get through my feed on Twitter and I got sucked in a couple of days ago. But there was this, this politician that said, you know, I'm not gonna go eat alone with another woman because I wanna honor God, I wanna honor my wife. People went crazy when he said that negatively. Like holiness it, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed. And, I, and it made me think about it. I did the same thing years ago. I was on Twitter and I was talking about how that I was never alone with another woman, that my wife is the only woman that I would be alone with. And, and, and the reason I do that is just because I know my heart, I know my sinful flesh, I know what I'm capable of. And I just don't ever wanna put myself in a situation where that would ever be an option. And you would have thought that I said publicly that I was joining the Nazi party or something. People went crazy on me over Twitter saying there's the dumbest thing that I ever heard in, in my life, that I was a, all kinds of stuff. But here's the point is that inevitably in that hundreds and hundreds of responses I got, and this was years ago, there was three or four, five, six people that in the course of that Twitter conversation that I got sucked into, unfortunately, people are asking me and they're like, man, that's intriguing. I've never thought about that. I've never thought about that. That's interesting that you would be so committed to your marriage with your wife that you wouldn't even allow yourself to be in that situation. So I'm gonna tell you something, holiness to a lot of people is gonna stink. Scripture's really clear, I won't go far into that, but to those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness to them. Holiness, you living your life set apart for the singular purpose of glory of God, some people are gonna get around and it's gonna smell like death to them. But some people, they're gonna get around you and they're gonna see holiness in your life and they're gonna smell it and it's gonna smell like life. And they're gonna be really, really interested in it. And that's what Jesus is saying is that you live your life in such a way that as you live your life, you are a little picture to the world of what the Lord looks at or what the what rather looks like. And, and so this, this verse starts making all the more sense in the world now. <laughs> Let's read it one more time. First Peter 1.15, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy in all your behavior. Why? Because it is written, God says, you shall be holy because I am holy. We live lives of holiness because when we do, it demonstrates to the world, it shows the world, hey, this is what God looks like. Last question here, why is that so important? Why is it so important that the world knows about God's holiness. Why is holiness such a critical part of God's character for us to display? Why is it so important? Um, and, And here's the thing, listen, I want you to catch this. Because there are so many things that God does that just do not make any sense separated from his holiness. There are so many things that God does that just does not make any sense separate from his holiness. About a month ago, there was a pretty famous contemporary Christian artist that came out publicly and said that he thought that as Christians, we ought to quit teaching about Jesus shedding his blood and his death on the cross. He said, we just ought to quit that altogether. 
And the reason that he gave was because God is a God of love. God is a God of love. And because God is a God of love, God would never put his son through that kind of suffering in order to reconcile his people back in relationship with him. And so his point is, look, we just need to quit talking about it all together. Now listen, church, there's only one of two reasons why that guy would make that statement. There's only one of two reasons why that guy would take basically uh, the Bible and flush it down the toilet and 2,000 years of brilliant people interpreting the scripture, interpreting the scripture and flushing that down the toilet. There's only one of two reasons they make that statement. Number one is why a believer would say that is that they have not read the Bible much and they are basing their theology on how they feel like God should act or which is much more likely that they have read the Bible and they simply do not understand the holiness of God. The only reason you would ever make the statement, hey, we need to quit talking about the blood, we need to quit talking about the cross, we need to quit talking about the wrath of God being appeased on the cross, the only reason you would ever make that statement is because you don't know what it means that God is holy. If you go to the Garden of Gethsemane with me for a second, you, you see Jesus and he's, Judas is left to go betray Jesus. The cross is just a few hours away. Jesus is in the garden by himself. He lifts up his eyes to God and he said, God, is there any other, any other way besides this one that I can buy these people back? He made the statement, can this cup pass from me? He's making reference to an Old Testament verse talking about the cup of the wrath of God. He's like, God, do I have to drink the cup? Am I gonna, do I have to do this? Is there another way to buy your people back besides you, you forcing me to drink the cup or me rather choosing rather to have to drink the cup of the wrath of Almighty God? And three times the Lord says no. And then Jesus says, God, it's not my will. It's not what I want, but it's what you want. And Jesus stood up and he never, ever questioned or wavered again. And he walked to the cross and he shed his blood and he died. And here's the thing. Why, why was that God's response when his son saying, is there any other way for this cup to pass from me? Why was God's response to his son? No, there is no other way. Why is the only way Jesus going to the cross and dying? Well, one, it's either as that contemporary Christian artist said that God is a cosmic child abuser or it's the only way because of God's utter and complete and total 100% eternal perfection and holiness. And it is because of that utter and complete and perfect and total holiness that he, because he is holy and just, must demand justice to pay the penalty for sin. And that's, by the way, exactly what the Bible teaches us, that yes, he is a God of love, and I'm gonna show you why he's a God of love in just a second, but since he is also a God of perfect holiness, justice for sin must be, it must be enacted. And this is a concept, that statement, because of God's holiness and righteousness, justice for sin must be enacted. When we hear that in biblical terms, we don't always understand it, but it's a, it's a concept that most of us, the vast majority of us would agree in. If you had a mass murderer, that was standing trial for all these different murders, maybe killed 20 people and he was standing trial for it. And, and the judge stood up and said, you know what? In the trial, I'm feeling, I'm feeling loving today. I'm feeling loving today. And so you know what, mass murderers, since I'm feeling loving, I'm just gonna let you go. 
you're free to go. I'm gonna let you off. You don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. Is that loving? Is that loving? Of course it's not loving. We would all stand up in the courtroom and say, that's not loving. You think you're feeling loving. That's not loving. That is injustice. But if that same judge were to stand up and say, look, what you did is the worst thing I could possibly imagine and justice has to be enacted. Because you broke the law and broke it heinously and because of my position as judge, I am forced to bring justice into this courtroom. I'm going to give you the death penalty. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take the death penalty for you. I'm gonna die in your place so that you can live. I mean, you can call that a lot of things, but you can't call that unloving. And church, I'm gonna tell you something. The cross is not unloving, amen? The cross is the greatest display of love in the history of the universe, why? Because of God's holiness. Because of his holiness, the penalty of our sin, it had to be paid. But in the most loving act of history, God came to this planet himself. He took our place and he shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why the scripture says God demonstrated his love for us. And that when we were still on the stand with a death penalty, a death sentence coming our way, Christ died for us. And none of that makes any sense in the world apart from his holiness. And so Peter tells us, number one reason you're to be holy because he is holy and we're called to display him to the world. We have to display that aspect of his character. Now the last two I'm gonna go through real fast, so get ready. First Peter 1.17. And by the way, this is one of the most sobering verses in my opinion in the whole Bible. Second reason why we are to respond to salvation in holiness. First Peter 1 Peter 1.17, Peter says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. If you address the fathers, this is the second response to holiness, the second foundation for why we're to be holy in light of our salvation. He says, if you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. When Peter says, hey, here's the second reason why holiness matters in response to our salvation, he starts talking about judgment day. Starts talking about the day where every single person that's ever lived is gonna stand, Revelation tells us, before the judgment throne of God. And here's, Jesus actually talks about it. I'll just read a couple of verses. Jesus describes this moment in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. Jesus said, and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put his sheep on his right, those who have trusted in Christ. So Lord and Savior, he puts them on the right. And the goats on the left, those who had never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior on the left. In verse 34, it says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he makes a statement. What do you think Jesus says next? He looks over at his believers who are on the right and he says, hey, blessed are you. 
because from the foundation of the world, God has been preparing a kingdom for you and you're about to receive it. But then he says something. What do you think he's gonna see? It says, you think he's gonna say, hey, come receive this kingdom because when you were eight, you walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer. That's not what he says. Let's see what he says. Matthew 25, 34, he says, then the king will say to those on his right, Come who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you invited me in. On judgment day, Jesus says, come all of you who are blessed and inherit the kingdom of God. And then he starts talking about our works. He starts talking about our actions that we did in this life. Now, church, I want to be really clear. On Judgment Day, Jesus talks about your actions not because your actions save you. It's abundantly clear in the text. You're saved by grace through faith alone. But he talks about your actions on that day because your actions in this life will reveal whether or not you are saved. That's what Jesus is talking about. We talked about this last week. The day you get saved, you receive a new nature. The day you get saved, you become a child of obedience. You are taken out of your old identity as a child of disobedience and you become by nature a child of obedience. Right? And so a pattern of holiness, a pattern, not, not complete holiness, but a pattern of holiness is always, it's always seen in the life of a believer. And that's why Jesus is talking about works on judgment day. And so let's read this again in light of that. First Peter 1 17, Peter says, if you address as father, the one, he's like, and if you call God father, the one, and watch how he describes the one, watch how he describes God, who impartially judges according to each individual, each one's work. He said, if you call God your father, you need to understand something about God. He's the one that impartially judges according to each person's work. And so in light of that, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of your stay here on earth. And so what the Bible is saying is, look, is the judgment day's coming. Everybody hear this. Judgment day's coming. And on that day where you stand before God, every single one of us individually, every single one of us individually will have our actions judged. Everything we did Everything that we didn't do, every act of obedience, every act of disobedience, the scripture even says that every single thought will be revealed and judged by a righteous and holy God. And Peter says, hey, you want some motivation to be holy? I got some motivation for you. You're going to stand before a righteous and holy God and every single one of your actions will be revealed on that day. And knowing that, he says, ought to produce in you a healthy, righteous fear. Peter said, not me. Peter said it. And I wanna be real clear. That word fear, right there, that is the Greek word phobos. That does not mean, does not mean awe. It does not mean reverence, it means fear. 
Peter says, you call him God, you need to live your life in a really healthy, righteous kind of understanding that you're gonna give an account one day to God. And yes, on that day, because of the blood of Jesus, he is your one defense. You can't say, well, God, I did all this work. I did all these things. And you go, okay, I'll let you in. No, you got one chance. The blood of Jesus, why should I let you into my kingdom? Jesus, his righteousness. You are completely clean, white as though, clothed in righteousness because of the cross. But what Peter is saying is that your life on this earth, it will reflect that. It will reflect it. And so one, we are to be holy because he's holy. And we're called to reveal his character to the world. And two, we are to be holy because judgment day is coming. And our obedience or our disobedience is going to reflect whether or not we have received the grace of God. Last thing, last one, we're done. First Peter 1 Peter 1.17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during a time of stay on earth. Now watch what he says next. Here's the motivation for why we are holy. Number three here, last one. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed. That word means bought back. You were owned by sin and death and slavery. And he says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus. And this is really, really simple. Kind of the last reason Peter is saying, look, holiness has to be our response to our salvation is really simple. He says, because God didn't buy you back with money. You're a child of God, you're in the family. He, he didn't adopt you by writing a check. He says he adopted you, he brought you into the family by shedding his precious blood. The scripture is basically saying that, that one, of the, one of the reasons and one of the keys to holiness is that we need to remember Good Friday. We need to think about it. It says remember, you gotta know. That's that, that word knowing there, it's experiential knowing. You gotta get to the place where you're remembering the fact that you have a savior that didn't just come write a check for you, but died for you. It means this, it means the next time that you're tempted to look at pornography, you remember the 39 lashes that Jesus received with a cat of nine tails across his back, ripping his flesh to shreds, bleeding, being tortured so that you could one day pass from this life and experience complete and total holiness in the kingdom of God forever. And that will help you choose holiness. The next time that you're tempted to enter into an emotional relationship with somebody that's not your spouse, you remember the crown of thorns that was crushed into his skull so that you could be made the bride of Christ. And when you do that, you choose holiness. The next time that you're tempted to walk around and thinking, man, I'm better than this person or, or talk down to other people or treat people harshly or poorly, you remember the humility it took for the creator to allow his creation to drive nails through his hands and feet. And you choose humility and holiness. The next time you're tempted to go to a party and, and drink too much and, and do things that a child of obedience should never do, you remember the thirst that Jesus endured for 24 hours through his trial 
and through his crucifixion and you choose holiness. The next time you're tempted to to not offer somebody forgiveness because they don't really deserve it, you think about Jesus hanging on a cross who looked at the men who were crucifying them and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing and you choose holiness. The next time that you think about, man, this is too hard, I'm just walking away, you think about the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross and endured suffering until he said it was finished so that you could stand as righteous before the Lord. The next time you're tempted to sin, you remember 1 Peter 1:18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from the feudal ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus, and you choose holiness. You know, we're approaching over the next couple of weeks, Holy Week. We, it's a time in our year where we remember the cross, we think about the cross, we think about everything he did for us. But First Peter is really, really clear. As we approach the cross, most importantly, let's think about the gospel. Let's think about that we're righteous because of his blood, but let's not forget what our response is to that blood. And that's holiness. All right, let's pray together. And as we pray, I want to speak to two people. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to speak to two groups of people. I want to talk to those of you in the room that have never in your life trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. There's never been a time in your life where you've said, I believe that I have sinned and I've fallen short, God, of your perfection. God, because of your holiness, you're just in demanding justice because of my life. And if that's you, I want you to know you have one defense on judgment day. It's not how good you live. It's not how bad you live. All that's gonna be revealed, but you only have one defense. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. We can be redeemed. We can be bought back. We can be paid for, not with money, not with gold, not with stuff, but with blood. It's the only way. And that is offered to you today free of charge. God says, come to me. All who are weary, I'll give you rest. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I'll take the burden completely away from you. And the best way you know how, trust in the blood of Jesus today. And the second group of people I want to talk to are believers. And very simply, I want to ask you this question. Is there anything in your life you need to repent of? Is there a sin in your life you need to turn from? Jesus did not pay for that sin with silver and gold. He shed his blood to cover that sin in your life. It's paid for, it's over. He didn't remember it, but you need to remember how he paid for it. And let's turn from it today and walk in holiness.
Jesus, we cannot say thank you loud enough or long enough or as many times enough to thank you for you coming to earth and you paying the penalty of our sin. I, I think about what you went through in the garden, knowing that you would become our sin so that we can be the righteousness of God through you. And Lord, we just don't know how to say thank you. And so we're gonna stand here in a second, God, and we're gonna sing to you as loud as we can. Lord, I pray if there's anybody walking in guilt today because of sin, I pray they just let that go too. That's from the enemy. And they would believe and trust in the righteousness that is theirs because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us be people that live our lives in light of that grace. And we ask that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand together.